This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 389. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. And I'm joined today by a special guest co-host, Brian McLaughlin, who, those of you who watch the video feed, you see him there. Crazy guy that he is. What's up, Brian? Hey, how's it going, Riley? Glad to have you on with, with me today. Today's episode, a special one. Uh, this one's titled, You Carry a Gun, But What About Medical? And this is a, a lead-in to and ties in with something that we've got kicking off this week, which is a special trauma care summit uh, that will actually officially launch on Thursday. But the deal is, is you want to make sure you are signed up and registered for this right now so that you get all the emails and all the information as to when this summit kicks off. Basically, what's going to happen is we're going to release one episode, one training video, if you will, each day over the period of about two weeks. And each episode will be a different title or a different topic. And uh, it'll be taught by none other than Brian McLaughlin right here. And it's going to be a really great time. Uh, the, the content, the training videos are completely 100% free. But the catch is they're only available to watch for free for 48 hours from the time that they're released. So that's why you want to make sure you're registered and watching your emails and watching those links as they come through so you can catch up so you can catch those episodes as they're released uh, so hopefully you have a chance in that 48 hour window to watch them they won't be very long they'll be like 5 to I think the longest one might be 15 minutes long uh, but most of them will be relatively short and digestible it'll be a really great trauma care based training uh, summit it's a, it's a training you know series of training videos so we're super excited about this Sponsored by Mountain Man Medical. You can head on over to mountainmanmedical.com to see a whole new line of trauma care and medical kits and other products. And to get signed up for the summit, probably should give that link too. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash summit. Concealedcarry.com forward slash summit. So I've got Brian here with me. And Brian, uh, I, I think we, you know, we've had you on the podcast a time or two. And I think we've even talked about some medical stuff in the past. But for those that are not acquainted with you and who you are and your background, I think it's only fair that we uh, give folks uh, you know, another chance to get to know you. So, uh, Brian McLaughlin, former U.S. Navy corpsman, former EMT. You've been through EMT school and uh, former ER tech. Is that is that right? Did I get That's that right? right? Yep, yep. Oh, cool. And he's also... Our director of medical training here at concealedcarry.com. So we're exci super excited about that, and we're excited to be uh, you know, releasing these training videos. Uh, Brian, why don't you give folks uh, you know, a little bit more uh, about your background? I mean, you spent some time overseas. Uh, would you mind kind of setting in the tone and kind of creating the, the context, if, if you will, uh, that we will sort of operate within over the next well, 45 minutes or so as we talk, as far as... You know, why uh, you're really passionate about trauma care. Yeah, uh, well, I, I got my start, uh, you know, in the military. Um, I was a corpsman, which is uh, for any of the listeners out there that doesn't know what a corpsman is. It's kind of like a medic, for, but for the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps don't have their own medics, so they pull from the Navy. 
and it's kind of a long tradition for um, corpsmen to um, to assist the Marine Corps, you know, during their combat operations. And so that's what I did. I was a sailor by title only. I never uh, set foot on a boat. Uh, I spent all my time with the Marines or uh, working in a hospital in the ER. So I, I got a chance uh, to start off my career in the military by working in the ER. And that's where I went to uh, EMT school for the first time. I got a chance to uh, bounce a lot of my questions off of ER doctors. Um, whenever we had downtime, I, I got a chance to uh, talk with them about trauma and, and the best way to do that. So I got a chance to kind of cut my teeth on the trauma a little bit while I was working at the ER. And then uh, I carried that um, on to uh, the other schools and then uh, the Marine Corps units when I was working there. So I got a chance to go through a lot of uh, combat trauma management schools. Um, did a little bit of work with um, the International School of Tactical Medicine out there in Palm Springs. And um, then I uh, deployed to Afghanistan where I, I saw a decent amount of combat. Um, got a chance to see just about everything and uh, and practice a little bit. You know, they call it practicing medicine because you never really get it right. Um, but you just do your best. So I did a lot of that. Um, enjoyed my time. Um, I had a good time with the Marines. They took good care of me and I did my best to take good care of them. And so that's where a big portion of my uh, my passion comes for, uh, you know, medical. It's a, an extension of combat, and I enjoyed that uh, that aspect of it. Being there when people need you and and knowing what to do, of course, is, you know, there's always that big question. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of funny, actually. You know, to me, I, mean, I don't mean to say that everything you told us is funny, but it's funny to me that I just learned something new about you, uh, which is that you've never set foot on a on a naval boat. Yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. Sailor by title only. That's what I say. I say it all the time. People just to say, ah, you were just in the Navy. I was like, well, I mean, technically, yeah, but I never really set foot on a boat. They tried to make me go once and I said, no, thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. Is that how that works? It It's not unless you know the system, which I did. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, I mean, so you've treated gunshot wounds. Blast wounds, IEDs, knife wounds, knife wounds. You've seen some crap. Yeah. Um, so, one of the major things, obviously, that's a concern for any medic and anybody that that is, uh, you know, trying to prepare themselves for dealing with major trauma is is obviously bleeding, uh, blood loss. Is uh, you know, I mean, if you don't if you don't have blood in your system in your body, then you don't get oxygen to the body and to the brain, and, and then everything shuts down, lights out, right? So, so uh, you know, how critical was it to you as a Navy corpsman uh, to you know be able to? I mean, I, I imagine you use tourniquets, right? Yeah. Can you t- can you share with us like a one story about a tourniquet use? Are you okay? are you, are you cool with that? I'm I'm cool with it. Uh, it might get a little gory. I don't know uh, how gory I should get. I, I'm I'm fine with it. It doesn't really bother me um, to talk about it. Um, and I and I enjoy getting the information out there and kind of I don't know uh, getting rid of some of the mystique around it. So right. as long as you're okay with gory, we can do that. Well, well okay. So folks, uh, consider this your forewarning. <laughs> Of what's about to come. <laughs> yeah. If you get way off in the weeds, I'll, I'll, I'll bring you back, Brian. Rain me in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, in the medical community, you know, it's not that uh, uncommon to talk about things the way that you're supposed to because you want to get that information out to as many people as possible. And um, and if you keep, you know, that kind of stuff bottled up, then, you know, no one wins. So, um, 
well, we were in one particular instance, um, we were doing a push to contact in Afghanistan and, um, uh, we had set up one of our, uh, other units was taking fire and we were kind of moving into, uh, to assist them. Um, and, uh, when we swept up to this berm, um, they didn't check the entire area. What well, they, they checked a good portion of it, but not enough, uh, to, uh, you know, to keep us all in one area. So they said, Hey, don't go over there. We haven't checked that spot. Stay in this area. So we had a, a combat replacement that was coming in and he was kind of new to the location and, um, he was kind of spun up, you know, it's a, a good portion of the Marine Corps is, you know, hoorah, get some. And he was excited to be in the combat and, um, he, he didn't pay attention to where he was going quite so well. And he wound up stepping on, on an IED right behind me. Um, so I went up, um, I thought we had gotten a mortar dropped right on us. I didn't think it was an IED at the time because we were in, in place. We weren't moving around. And um, so I thought we had a mortar drop right on us. So I turned around and one of my sergeants was, you know, yelling Corman up. So um, I couldn't see anybody. I It felt like I was all by myself except for uh, hearing my sergeant yell. And uh, there was this huge cloud of smoke and dust. And so I go running into this smoke and dust and, you know, I'm yelling for, uh, the casualty that's down and I could hear him in there screaming. Um, but you know, I couldn't see him. And so, uh, I just ran to where I heard the screaming and laying in the crater, um, was, uh, one of the Marines and, uh, he was missing his left leg. My, my, uh, memory gets a little hazy after a while. I can't remember if it was the left or the right. But uh, he was missing one of his legs, and um, his uh, arm was pretty messed up. Um, and when an IED blows up, it blows up and out. And um, so it, it got his leg, but it also, like, took all of his gear, his his plate carrier and all of his magazines and everything on his chest and just blew them all over the crater. Um, so I went running up there, and then uh, you jump on the casualty, and I they teach us, you know, you take your, your knee and you jam it into their femoral artery to try to slow down the blood flow enough while you're getting out your, uh, your tourniquet. So I did that and he was yelling at me to get off of him, and I was telling him to shut up. And my bedside manner at that point wasn't probably the best. <laughs> I could have been a little, uh, gentler about it, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stress going on at that point. Mm. So I, I start getting a tourniquet on him and I look up and one of my other Marines is, is standing there watching kind of, you know, in shock. And so I yell at him. I said, Hey, get on that arm, get a tourniquet on that arm. And so he kind of snaps too and starts getting a tourniquet ready and starts putting it on, on, uh, the casualties right arm. And, uh, so he, I tightened it down nice and tight, um, and then um, I started getting uh, my combat gauze, and uh, he was missing his uh, his leg, but there was a decent portion of the bone still sticking out. And so I just crammed as much gauze down down the hole as I could, mm. and just packed it as full as I can get with as much combat gauze. And I could feel, um, you know, the the shattered bone there would catch on the skin of my hand. So I was trying to be a little bit careful not to cut myself. Um, so I, I get that tightened down, I get it packed, I get a pressure dressing on the end of the stump and, um, um, and, uh, I, 
the entire time I'm like calling over my shoulder to the sergeants, you know, because there's a firefight going on the entire time that I'm working on this guy. And one of the things that, uh, you know, the Taliban like to do is capitalize on an IED. You know, you're down a guy, everyone's confused, you know, you're trying to get a bird in the air and get your casualty out. So they'll try to come in and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, with uh, close quarter fire and try to try to mess you up. So I was a little bit concerned about that. I kept shouting over my uh, shoulder to uh, my sergeant, you know, asking him if, you know, we were good there or we needed to move. He said, don't worry about it, doc. Keep doing what you're doing. So I said, good to go. And I just kept working. Um, I got an IV started pretty quick, which I was proud of. I was, I got good at IVs in the ER and then, uh, getting a chance to do one in a firefight is a personal, uh, proud moment of mine. Uh, so I got him, uh, got him spun up and got him taken care of, hit him with some morphine to help with the pain. And, uh, by then we had a, uh, a bird fly in and, uh, pick him up, take him off to the hospital and he lived. Wow. That's crazy, dude. That's a crazy story. Uh, I can't even imagine like picturing myself in a situation like that, you know, uh, on a battlefield, you know, firefight with all that going on. Uh, what kind of tur- tourniquet was it that you used? Just it was a soft T wide. Yeah. Nice. Nice. That, that's what I carry. So, um, now we, we've, uh, you know, in the last, well, for a while now, we've actually stocked various uh, medical and trauma kit supplies on our website at concealedcarry.com. Uh, but we've really been uh, accelerating that and, and adding to our inventory there uh, in the last uh, couple of months here. Soft T-wides are, are something that we hope to have added to the inventory soon, but uh, not quite yet available uh, for us on our site. But uh, Cat 7 tourniquet is uh, definitely on the site and available. We got SWAT T tourniquets. We got, uh, well, that's really the two tourniquets, SWAT T's and the Cat Gen 7s. Um, that's crazy though. Uh, soft TY did its job though, huh? Oh man. I love the SWAT T it's uh, or not the SWAT T the, uh, soft T that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The soft T, uh, that's my favorite go-to if I'm treating someone else, I, I prefer the cat for self-application. I think it's a little bit quicker. Um, but if I'm working on someone else, then, uh, the soft T is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just seems to me that it's so robustly built. And as you crank the windlass, I mean, it just, there's just no give in that thing. Like, you mm-hmm. know, that you can keep cranking and it's going to just keep tightening that thing down. Yeah. Uh, That's a solid product. I got a chance to talk with uh, some of those bubbas over there um, that produced the, the soft tea uh, while we were at SHOT Show. And, and I had a good conversation with them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, t- tell us real quick. I mean, Tell us about the importance of obviously having and using a tourniquet, but also especially where, you know, like I carry a little life hack with me all the time. You know, obviously I, I it's there to use on anybody else that might need it. But tell us about the importance of being able to self-apply a tourniquet. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have any help, um, you got to be able to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and And one of the benefits of having a tourniquet already staged having a purpose-built tourniquet is, is pretty important. I, I've been trained. I, I can make my own tourniquet if I have to, and I can make it so that it'll work. But the problem is, is it takes time to make a tourniquet. And a lot of people say, you know, I'll just whip off my belt and I'll use that as a tourniquet. And you see that in the movies and it might work in the movies, but in real life that you don't really get enough pressure on the limb to do you a whole lot of good. Um, so mo- for the most part, anybody that comes into the hospital with a tourniquet on their on their leg made out of a belt and they're probably not going to make it. So 
making your own tourniquet, having to improvise one, even if it if you're fast and you can make that tourniquet quick and you can finish it in two minutes, your patient can completely bleed out from a femoral artery within two minutes and 30 seconds. Mm. So you've just spent two minutes making a tourniquet and now you have 30 seconds left and hopefully there's going to be enough blood in the body of your casualty to keep them alive. You're cutting it close if you haven't already cut it too close already. Yeah. You know, I saw something recently that I thought was a pretty interesting statistic and it it said, uh, this actually from a presentation. I sent you a link. I don't know if you had a chance to check this out, but it was a uh, tactical uh, combat casualty care presentation of some sort, a TCCC presentation, a little mm. slideshow. Yeah, special operations. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's on specialoperationsmedicine.org. Really cool little slide with all kinds of great info. But there's a statistic that's kind of buried down in there a little bit. It says, in 2001, very few American combatants had tourniquets, and no one had hemostatic dressings with them. In 2018, no American combatant goes onto the battlefield without an IFAC that contains both. How, how critical is that, and how has that changed uh, medicine in the field? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's changed it drastically. I mean, the, the whole point of a corpsman or a medic is to be able to take care of preventable deaths. And in combat and in a lot of emergency situations, there's, there's a good possibility of there not being a preventable death. You know, that no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to save that person. Um, but if you have someone with a little bit of training and some gear nearby, there's the possibility that you can save someone's life with that gear. So when, you know, we, we started putting uh, soldiers and Marines in Afghanistan and Iraq, initially, there wasn't a whole lot of that. And it wasn't until um, uh, special operations started to really pay attention to that, that we started to make a big change. And that's done a lot of good. Um, and that's, that's increased a lot of survivable wounds um, for the military. But it, anything that the military does, the civilian uh, world tends to you know, follow suit. So when you hear a lot of numbers about how tourniquets save lives, it's absolutely true. But you also have to remember the context where that, that data is coming from. Mm -hmm. So you've got uh, soldiers and Marines who are wearing body armor and they're primarily being injured by IEDs, so blast injuries. And since your core is so protected and your extremities, your arms and your legs aren't as protected, that's where you tend to take a majority of your wounds. So when you see how much good tourniquets do, they do that much good because of the situation, the location of the injuries and the environment those injuries were taken in. As a civilian, you're generally not wearing body armor. I mean, mm -hmm. You know, some of our listeners might be, but for the most part, you know, we're not wearing body armor. So you can take that wound anywhere on your body. And if you take one to your trunk or your neck in a junctional area, you know, your armpit or in your sure. groin, tourniquet's not going to work. Yeah. So you're going to have to have something in place where you need, you, you can take care of that wound when a tourniquet doesn't work. And that's where your quick clot and combat gauze and uh, pressure dressings come into play. Yeah. Now, of course, there are such tourniquets as uh, referred to as junctional tourniquets, which are specialized tourniquets that are both kind of expensive and in some cases really expensive and two, not really practical to carrying, you know, like in an IFAC. It's more of a specialized uh, piece of equipment. Right. Um, but probably actually wouldn't be a bad idea to, to know and be familiar with uh, ways to apply pressure in some of those junctional areas of the body to uh, reduce 
bleeding from from those those trickier locations. But again, that's that's something that's probably you know it's not not really widespread knowledge. It's more specialized knowledge. Hey, real quick, I, I wanted to just talk about how it, it feels like to me in the last few years, last you know three, four, five, six years or so, that I, as I have you know, been more and more in, you know, well, I'm now in this, in this uh, line of work, you know, meaning teaching people can still carry about self-defense, you know, in this industry now full time for four years, four plus years. And there's been this movement in the civilian sector to, for more and more people to be carrying things like tourniquets on them, to be carrying IFACs and, and, and such. Uh, that was not really so much a thing, you know, not that long ago. And, and you look at how, what we've learned in the training that has been developed from the military sector and what's kind of come, you know, that's all just starting to kind of filter down now into the civilian sector. Right. Um, but you look at how recent, even that has changed like back as, as recently as 1992 tourniquets were still strongly discouraged as like a general uh, practice, if you will, you know, in, 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 in the military field. Uh, Cause they were afraid of like, you know, well, causing damage to limbs and, and all this stuff, right? But it was, you know, some of that was based on uh, the thought process from way back in Vietnam, you know, and even earlier than that, that, that tourniquets just, you know, they were discouraged from use. And the crazy thing is, if you look at Vietnam as an example, that it was that extremity hemorrhage, so wounds in the legs, you know, the arms, the, the 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 limbs of the body was the number one cause of preventable death in Vietnam. But at the same time, they were not really teaching to use tourniquets like they are today. And so it's been in relatively recent history that we've gone, huh, wait a minute. Tourniquets actually are very effective and they don't cause the kind of damage, you know, that, that we used to think that they did. Medicine, of course, has advanced so much more. Um, but, uh, now we're starting to see that start to filter to the civilian side of things. Like, hey, look what they've been learning in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere in the world. Uh, you know, we should maybe consider be, uh, to carry uh, tourniquets on us, even just as civilians. I've had one on my person or at least on a bag or something within reach of me for the last several years now. Uh, once I finally realized how important that that was. Now, you made a great point um, talking about how our military uh, personnel are most likely wearing body armor, uh, especially arm, way more effective armor than even what our LEOs uh, in the civilian side of things is wearing. You know, LEOs are wearing soft body armor, not going to do as much, you know, for, say, high velocity rounds uh, from a rifle and such. Uh, our military uh, men and women wearing, you know, like actual plates and, and stuff like that. Um, so, what that has resulted in is a lot, you know, of, of wounds are going to be in the extremities. You brought up a great point that that might be a little bit different in the civilian world. So that's a nice little segue into, we, we just got done talk, talk a little bit about tourniquets. Tell us about wounding to the trunk area of the body. So, and let's, let's divide this up because wounding in the body is treated a little bit differently. If it's in that chest cavity, you know, above the diaphragm, for instance, versus below the diaphragm. So tell us real quick about when someone's wounded above the diaphragm. How, do, how is that typically handled? What can we do, at least in the short term, as we're waiting for first responders to arrive? Yeah, so there's not a whole lot that you can do um, for wounds to the chest cavity. Um, you, you have to get that patient to um, a doctor as quickly as possible. There's not a whole lot you can do trauma at all 
um, unless you're in a hospital setting. And the only thing that you can do is keep, keep the patient alive for as long as you can to get them to a hospital. That's what's going to save their life. Um, a corpsman or a doctor or a paramedic that is not in a hospital, that's all that they're worried about. They just want to transport that patient as quickly as they can. And the sooner that you can do that, the better. A lot of times you'll hear like the golden hour or the platinum 10, um, the amount of time that you should, you know, you, you need to get that patient to a hospital. So um, the second leading cause of preventable death on the battlefield is going to be your tension pneumothorax. And that's what happens when you get penetrating trauma to the chest. You take a bullet to the chest, it punctures through into the chest cavity, and whether it hits the lung or, the, or not is not really um, what you're mostly concerned about. What you're concerned about is air getting into your chest cavity. And at first, a little bit of air is not that big of a deal. But every time that you breathe in, not only are you breathing in air through your mouth, but you're also breathing in air through that hole in your chest. And what happens is that air isn't able to escape after it gets in. So you breathe in, a little air goes in. You breathe, take another breath, a little more air goes in. Until the air pressure inside of your chest builds up to the point where it begins to put pressure on your heart. That's what's called a yeah, tension pneumothorax is when your heart is beginning to be compressed so much from that air pressure that it's not able to expand and contract like it needs to, to pump blood around your body. And, um, basically what happens is you, you wind up having your heart not able to function correctly and you die from that, um, instead of, yeah. you know, actually bleeding to death. You, you go into cardiac arrest. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's not, we're not only concerned about air getting into the chest, you know, out on the outside portion of the lungs, but also there's probably, you know, bleeding and other things going on inside that chest cavity, which means that there's fluids that are leaking into a chest cavity where they not, are, are not normally, right? Uh, which that also adds to that pressure. Yeah, that's called a hemoneumothorax when you have blood in your chest cavity and, the, and that added pressure, um, you know, increases the difficulty of the heart to uh, pump adequately. Yeah. So, you know, a common way of at least temporarily uh, treating someone with a penetrating chest wound like this would be to use a chest seal, right? Yep, that's right. So uh, that's pretty much the only thing that you can do um, to take care of that. Um, as a as a corpsman, I was trained on how to do a uh, a, um, a needle decompression, um, where you take the. Um, if any of your listeners have seen the the movie uh, Three Kings with Ice Cube. Um, couple other people i think george clooney's in it um they have a pretty decent uh re representation of what's going on um during a, a tension pneumothorax and in that video in that movie they use a a, a needle uh thoracentesis to relieve that um and you you can do that if you are trained by a professional on how to do it don't just try to do it on your own you know don't watch a youtube video and then give it a shot um and generally you only need to do that after I don't want to say, I don't want to give it like an actual number, but 20 minutes it usually takes for a, um, for attention pneumothorax to, to start putting your casualty in danger. So that's why it's the second leading cause, um, because you can get the patient to a doctor quickly enough. You can get that taken care of and it's not that big of a deal. You treat the bleeding first, then you, you focus on treating that chest wound trauma if you can. So then you take that, uh, that occlusive dressing, your chest seal, and you, 
put that over the wound and that just prevents air from getting into the chest cavity, more air from getting into the chest cavity and continuing to increase that pressure. Right. And uh, now we've got really two types of occlusive dressings or chest seals. There'd be vented ones and non-vented ones. Can you explain kind of the difference between those and and why uh, we have vented uh, chest seals, for instance? Yeah. So uh, a a vented chest seal just allows air to escape if it can. Um, When you breathe out, um, the pressure in your chest can change and it can force a little bit of that air out and help to further reduce that problem of a tension pneumothorax and it'll help to uh, keep your patient a little more uh, comfortable as well. Um, but um, s- sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, if all you have is an unvented chest seal, absolutely use it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and chest seals are fairly simple and quick to um, improvise as well. All you need is something that won't let air through, you know, a piece of plastic or a piece of rubber and some tape. You just tape that over the wound, and that should get, do a, a pretty good job of keeping extra air from getting into the chest cavity. Right, right. Which is, you know, one good reason if, if you have some kind of, uh, you know, tape uh, at the very least in a, in a kit along with, you can take the wrapper from uh, some other thing, like uh, the wrapper from a piece of gauze and tape that onto that chest in, in an improvised chest seal fashion. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that vent is is key to allowing, and again, whether it's air or or fluid to get out, uh, uh, you know, it should allow both of those things to work its way through those vents. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting wound because you have a chest cavity that's supposed to basically be sealed, right? And you have a lung contained inside that chest cavity, and the lung is compressing and decompressing and compressing and decompressing as we're breathing in and out. And then all of a sudden you get wounded in that that lung area. Uh, you know, let's say something passes through a bullet, or it could be some any sort of impaling wound that penetrates both that chest wall cavity and that lung, and you have the opportunity for air to get into that cavity through the wound itself, but also you have a punctured lung that is going to allow air and things to to escape from that lung inside that cavity. And that's why we get that there that you know, and then what's happening is air ends up inside the cavity, but outside of the lung and starts, you know, that lung basically collapses to a degree. And then we get more and more and more air and fluid and all that building up potentially too. And voila, you, you get the recipe for, for cardiac arrest. I, I had the unfortunate uh, pleasure of, <laughs> of, of, crushing a number of ribs and puncturing my lung. I didn't have a penetrating wound uh, through the chest wall, but uh, definitely had, you know, other issues going on inside the chest as that lung was injured. There was, you know, bleeding and fluid loss and all this stuff. And and I kind of felt what that experience like to not only lose half of your capacity to breathe, but also I could feel things in my chest getting tight. Uh, And I didn't really realize, you know, just how... I knew I was hurt bad, but it was later as I was talking with a doctor who was explaining all this to me, saying, you know, how he explained basically everything you just explained as far as how all that pressure can build up. The heart starts, you know, having to work harder. It's under, you know, it's, it's being pressured or, or compressed, you know, uh, in ways that it's not used to. And eventually, yeah, he's like, yeah, you got to get that fixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or you're going to die. And it, it's, it's a pretty scary, uh, thing to experience. I'll, I'll just say yeah. from firsthand experience, it was, it was not fun. I, I do not wish it upon, uh, anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people think that it's because, um, you know, if you take a bullet to your chest, it's because, 
your your risk of death is from you know your lung being punctured and that's concerning and you should definitely get that taken care of but that's probably not what's going to that's not what's going to kill you um lots of people live with only one lung you know that's you you can do that and you can survive you know well enough um, from just one lung. So that's not usually the issue. The issue is, you know, that, uh, extra yeah. pressure on the heart. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right. So these are two things that are in absolutely every one of my kits, a tourniquet and chest seals. Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you're the same way, Brian. I mean, those are two things that especially in, you know, so often our, our minds probably, we, we think about all these horrible things that could happen to us or to our loved ones or people that are near and around us in our day-to-day environment. And we, you know, like say an active shooting, let's go worst case scenario. You know, we have this mass casualty event and there's all these people now with bullet wounds in legs and arms and hands in chests and other parts of the body. And it's like, well, okay, I can get a tourniquet on an arm. I can get a tourniquet on a leg. I can apply pressure, you know, in the case of a, a wound to the lower abdomen, right? Again, that's another thing that there's not a whole lot we could do in the field, but we want to get pressure on that. Maybe, maybe get some, some gauze applied, uh, and get pressure on that area of the abdomen. Try to, you know, keep the blood loss to a minimum as much as possible, right? But then that chest cavity piece, I think is something that is often overlooked and, and yet, here, you know, we're to this point where I, I don't go anywhere without having a kit with at least tourniquets and chest seals. You, you did a great job, by the way. Right? You wrote an article uh, basically talking about that, about how, you know, people should have like more chest seals and there should be more emphasis on that sort of thing. Yeah, especially for active shooter situations. You know, we, I, um, I did a little bit of work with um, uh, faith-based organizations and training up some of their security staff for being able to respond to a uh, an active shooter event. And that's one of the things I always tried to make sure that I told every church that I worked with, um, you know, it's great to have tourniquets, definitely need to have tourniquets, but that's not all you should have, you know, um, especially, you know, if you're putting a kit in your range bag or something like that, you know, having uh, a way to treat um, penetrating trauma to the chest is important. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great article. And, and folks, if you want to go reference that, it's on, on the concealedcarry.com site. Uh, I don't know if we have a link handy for that. We have a couple of links I'll, I'll hand out as we go through this, uh, the rest of this episode with Brian here. Yeah, if you just search tourniquets on the, uh, on the website, it'll pop right up. Yeah. Yeah. And you actually just recently published another article and let's touch on this real quick, Brian. Uh, recently, like yesterday, I think it was published this article about fake tourniquets. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us, you know, kind of what's the deal with, with tourniquets, especially fake ones, uh, what to look for and, and why this is even an issue in the first place. Yeah. Well, um, you know, tourniquets work pretty good and a lot of people want to buy them and some unscrupulous companies, um, don't bother to make good products and they just put out something that looks like a cat tourniquet and it is in no way, shape or form. Uh, I suppose in shape and form it is, but it's not even close to a cat tourniquet. And, um, I uh, I decided I was going to do a little bit of testing on it. Um, I wanted to see if they how quickly they would break in comparison with a cat tourniquet. So I got a log yeah. and I put them on the log and I cranked it down on the log as tight as I could go. And the cat tourniquet, I cranked it down. I I got two full turns out of the windlass before it wouldn't go anymore. And then I 
tried to see if I could move it or shake it around or if it was at any risk of breaking whatsoever. And I put a decent amount of pressure into it. I, I weigh 250 pounds. I'm six foot two. I could, I could get a little bit of pressure on that tourniquet and it, I didn't have any issues with the, uh, with the cat tourniquet at all. And I took one of these counterfeit tourniquets that I got off of Amazon from a, an unscrupulous company, um, from overseas. And, um, I put it down on the log and not only did it take eight turns for me to get it tightened down, um, but it also broke. Um, and, uh, I tried a couple of different tourniquets to make sure that I, I wasn't, um, you know, putting any undue, um, stress on just one and they each failed at a different location. Um, and then after, and then I got ready to start writing the article and then, um, I decided, I said, well, hold on. Now I expected this tourniquet to break. I, I wasn't mm. expecting it to hold up to the cat. So when I got that result, that's the result I was expecting. And I thought, well, man, that's a, that could be a little bit unfair. You know, what if it might not be the best tourniquet, but maybe it would work in a pinch. If it's all you had, could you use that to stop bleeding if, if you were stuck? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I didn't have any more tourniquets left cause I broke them all. So, um, <laughs> I ordered another one and, uh, waited for it to come in. And when it came in, um, I put it on uh, my left arm and then, um, I cranked it down until, um, I, I cranked it down eight turns total. And every, after every turn, I would check my pulse to see if I still had a pulse. And after eight turns, I still had a pulse, um, to, uh, my, uh, radial artery. Yeah. So, um, and then after, on top, wait, hold on. You said after eight turns. Yes. Yeah. After <laughs> eight turns, I kept turning it. And after every time I, I'd set it in place and then I check and then I turn it again, check, turn it again, all the way to eight. Um, the tourniquet didn't break, um, but after eight turns, I, I could still feel my radial pulse. Dang. One of the That's biggest wild. problems, though, uh, yeah, one of the biggest problems is that um, because I was turning it so much, occasionally I would it would slip, and then it would just and unwind a couple mm -hmm. of turns, and then I'd have to grab it and then try to go back past that again. And so even if at the end of that, even if I did have, um, an occluded artery because it took too many turns to, uh, to turn it, um, not effective, not even a little bit. If I, if I was bleeding profusely, I would be saying some very, very bad words very yeah. often and very loudly because yeah. that would be extremely frustrating. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so actually you and I, we were doing some filming for, for this summit, for these summit videos the other day, and, uh, we have a training tourniquet that we were using for part of that. And, and the truth is the training tourniquets, uh, and I'm actually okay with this. I, I think it's okay to, to buy the knockoff uh, training tourniquets uh, for, for training use because I, I don't necessarily care as much about getting, comp you know, for training purposes. I mean, the whole point is, is in your understanding, in your mindset with, tourni with regards to tourniquet use, the idea is that you get the tourniquet on, you want to get that initial tightness as tight as you can, right? And then you start winding and you stop winding a tourniquet when the bleeding stops, right? right? That's the general rule, right, Brian? Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, in training, when I'm just doing the practice, going through the motions of this, uh, there's still quite a bit of tightness to that windlass. You're still going to feel a lot of pressure on your arm or on your leg. Uh, you may not get complete occlusion in those vessels and, and, and uh, arteries in your arm or leg, but I think it's still a valid tool to use in training. But that would be my one uh Context, and I think you you said something to the same effect that uh, that that you know you that's basically what our intent is to eventually provide some uh, training tourniquets available on our site, uh, and and those might not necessarily be the authentic full you know Gen Seven cat tourniquets, uh, but but just for training purposes. But they'll be identified in a blue color as opposed to you know, our real. And I think all training products in the medical uh, community typically are blue. Uh, we see that with the SWAT T tourniquets, even with the soft T. Uh, tourniquets uh, and so forth, but uh, anyway, well, the, that that practice is really key, though. Yes, yeah, I I completely agree with that. You don't want the first time that you put on a tourniquet to be in an emergency. Yeah, um, and a lot of people will say, "Well, why don't I just use the cat that I just bought? I paid thirty dollars for this thing. Why don't I just practice with that?" And the reason is is that um, tourniquets and you know a lot of trauma equipment is generally a one use thing. Um, you start to lose some of the effectiveness of the tourniquets when you reuse them often. So if you're putting them on, you know, a couple of times and, and learning how to use them correctly, there's the possibility that it's not going to be as effective. So you don't want to use the tourniquet that you're going to use to save your life or a loved one's life to practice with. Um, and since, right. um, you know, and we've got these, um, these, cheap blue tourniquets you're not going to pay the full price for you know that you would pay for a cat um you just if it's blue you don't put it in your uh, your medical kit that's for oh, yeah. practice only use that so you know when you're teaching your family how to stop blood loss then they can use that to learn yep absolutely yeah it's a really great point and so Anyway, uh, we were practicing with that training one, right? And uh, it, you could definitely tell, though, that I, I could sense that I could keep cranking that. And the more I cranked it, the more I felt like it was just going to break. And I didn't really want to have this thing all tight on my arm and just have it all of a sudden snap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Uh, just flex so... those guns a little bit. <laughs> Pop it right off. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then we went right over to the, and it was a genuine, you know, SWAT T training tourniquet. And the SWAT T is the big, fat, elastic band that, you know, the idea there is that you, uh, you just start winding that thing around. You know, every time you pull it around, you want to pull it tight again. And it's got the little like oval shapes and circular shapes and diamonds and squares. And you're trying to t turn squares into diamonds and diamonds into squares and ovals into circles and circles into ovals. <laughs> if that makes sense, it makes a lot of sense actually when you look at the uh, the little diagramming that's uh, on printed on the surface of the SWAT tourniquet. But you know, I, I had the realization after the fact after we did some of that uh, training, Brian, that the reason why that SWAT T was so much more effective than the blue training fake cat tourniquet was because it was an actual tourniquet and the fake one was not doing its job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I got that, that uh, SWAT T on and I'm like, Oh yep, yeah, Yep. Yeah, hands turning purple here, you know? 
Yeah, the SWAT T is a great option. Uh, the only problem that I have with it is that um, y- the way you secure it is by tucking it under itself. Um, you know, a cat or a uh, soft T wide, they've got, you know, locks in place where you can, you know, lock that tourniquet down so it doesn't come loose. If the tourniquet comes loose, that's a bad day. You're going to have yeah. a bad day. So you, you want to make sure that it's always in place. And the SWAT T, you, you tuck it under itself and it, it'll stay there pretty f- fine. Uh, the problem is, is that in an emergency, you might need to go places. And when you move the casualty or you move yourself, there's a risk that it could come loose and stop doing what it's supposed to. So if it were me and I was going to use the SWAT T, which, you know, I think it's fine to use it as long as you secure it well and you're always paying attention to it to make sure that it's doing what it's doing. And if I've got the option, you know, in Afghanistan, I would carry around a big roll of duct tape. If if I had to use a SWAT T, I would put a uh, put a loop of um, duct tape around it kind of keep it in place make sure it's not going to go anywhere while we're running around doing our stuff mm-hmm. yep 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 good stuff man now we had a question uh actually i want to go back to this uh jared asked about uh it's a really great point that he makes would you say that the majority of injuries in the civilian world where a tourniquet comes into play would not be gunshots but more likely work or automobile injuries Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you can get a wound no matter what you're doing. You're doing a home improvement project. You slip with the utility knife and open up a trench on your arm. You know, that's a, that's a good possibility of, you know, uh, we had someone associated with the company a little while ago. I, I don't know if you remember who, but she fell off of a ladder while she was cleaning her gutters, mm-hmm. caught her arm on a piece of metal, and she had to break out her own tourniquet to, uh, mm-hmm to take care of herself. So, yeah. you know, any- that was uh, Eve Flanagan who mm. was a contributing writer to our site for, for a time. And, uh, yeah, I don't, she was doing something on her kind of, she has like a farm slash ranch, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. She, she just, Oh, I saw actually the scar. Uh, I spent some time with her at, uh, an event this last November and, or September and yeah, nasty, nasty scar. Like she really ripped up her arm bad. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool that she had a tourniquet right right there with her. She just was able to throw that on. And, you know, whether it was actually really needed or not, that's kind of beside the point. I know she was bleeding badly. I don't think that she, you know, she, she was alone, working alone. She's kind of you know, somewhat re- removed or remote location from a hospital. I don't think she even questioned it. Just, a, oh, my gosh, I tore myself up. I'm bleeding really badly. Got that tourniquet on quickly and then just drove herself to the hospital. All mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And it's better to use one and not need it than to need it and not have it. Yeah. You know, and that's why it's important to have, I like to tell people you need to have a kit in multiple locations. You know, um, if you have multi-story home, having one on each level, you know, cause if you break your leg in the basement, do you have to crawl up three flights of stairs to go get to your medical kit? Uh, it's important to have one in your car, have one in your wife's car, have one. If you have kids of gr- driving age, having one in your kid's car and then making sure they all know where it is as well. You know, you don't just sneak it in there, you know, let them know where it's at and make sure they know how to use what's in it. Um, you can, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that if you fall down and you break, break a bone, um, especially, you know, a femur, um, that jagged end of the bone is very sharp and it can slash through your femoral yeah. artery pretty easily. Um, so even if you don't have an open injury, there's enough space inside of your leg that you can bleed to death from an unopened femoral fracture. Um, so 
being able to uh, have a tourniquet on standby and uh, being able to apply it quickly is important. And having one that's already made, you know, if you're like E. Flanagan and you cut open your arm, you might not have the use of an a hand to improvise your own tourniquet. So that's it's, it's important to have one already. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, you know, I really like uh, Dan's comment here. I need to get a med kit. <laughs> yeah, yes, you do. <laughs> get two. The good news is, is, you know, so so you know that's why we're making a big deal out of this, and we're talking about this, and obviously, this is somewhat of a advertorial, if you will, an infomercial to some degree. I mean, we're talking about really important stuff here, but we're also trying to promote the fact that that you know Brian here as our instructor uh I'm in there a little bit just to you know for a few little things here and there but these these training videos that we're releasing this week uh really really important content guys I mean if you want to learn more specifically about how to correctly apply things like tourniquets or chest seals or or compression bandages or you know that sort of stuff like and there's a lot more than that, by the way. Uh, Brian's worked really hard on putting together all the content, on, on writing this all up. And, you know, we've been working to, to get all this filmed and, and ready to go. Uh, this, that's because we, it's really important to us that we get this information out there. Uh, our hope is that it makes a difference in somebody's life somewhere, that it saves somebody's life out there somewhere, potentially. And then also, it's been a big goal of ours. We've worked really hard to secure the absolute best pricing in the industry that we can on name brand quality components to then source and buy and put together our own uh, trauma kits uh, at concealedcarry.com. Now, this is through uh, a new venture called Mountain Man Medical. Mountainmanmedical.com is a whole new uh, company, a new business line, and all focused on Trauma gear, kits, medical uh, equipment, all this stuff. And right now, it's pretty simple and straightforward. We basically have two kits. The Sweetwater kit, which is a kind of a, a an entry level essentials kit. It's got a ba- you know it's got a SWAT T tourniquet in it. It's got a, uh, a compression bandage. It's got gauze. It's got tape. It's or ace bandage. It's got gloves. It's got trauma shears. Um, all this stuff, right? Uh, well, I, I, I shouldn't you know. I, that's kind of the core of it. Now, in the the Yellowstone kit, you get the stuff like Quick Clot, you get uh, chest seals, you get you know a couple other things, extra gauze and, and things of that nature. And then with both of these kits, you have the option of upgrading that SWAT T tourniquet and adding to the kit a Cat uh, Cat Gen Seven tourniquet. This is the latest generation Cat tourniquet made by North American Rescue, a name that everybody should recognize if you know anything about tourniquets. North American Rescue, who's who's it was the company that makes the uh, the cat tourniquet, combat combat application tourniquet. That's what it stands for. Uh, so these kits. Here's the thing: you got the Sweetwater kit and the Yellowstone kit. Both names, by the way, inspired by uh, bodies of water, or I guess you can even think about Yellowstone National Park if you if you want to. But both bodies, you know, Sweetwater River, the Yellowstone River, Yellowstone National Park. These are kind of areas in that. Uh, mountain man region, you know, that's so, you know, embedded in our historical lore about, uh, you know, wild frontiersmen and mountain men and so forth. Uh, that's kind of the inspiration of all this. And, and by the way, to that point, we, we, we liked this name Mountain Man Medical because, uh, you know, these mountain men would go out on their own for weeks and months at a time, sometimes completely by themselves as they were run these various trap lines, you know, trying to, you know, the, the big thing was these beaver pelts, right? They're trying to capture all these beavers because that was the big selling hot ticket item at the time. 
And they'd be gone for weeks and months at a time by themselves. They were their own first responder. And many of them did perish, unfortunately. And, and many of them suffered severe wounds and injuries and illnesses and all sorts of things. And they had to learn how to take care of themselves. They had to learn how to fix themselves up, bandage themselves, put themselves back together. They learned a lot from the, from the Native Americans, the Indians at the time as well, learned, uh, you know, these ancient healing, uh, 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 remedies and, and different things. And so we were really inspired by that whole kind of story, if you will, about mountain men and hence mountain man medical was born. So the Sweetwater kit, the Yellowstone kit, there's going to be other kits and other things that come down the road. But right now we're launching with these two, uh, basic, but essential, uh, and awesome trauma kits available at mountain men, mountainmanmedical.com. And again, there's some special uh, offers and opportunities. If you want to get, go ahead and sign up for the free summit, concealedcarry.com forward slash summit. That's where you do that. And there's an opportunity to buy those same kits too, as well as you're, as you're going through that process of registering and all that. It actually says right there, hey, do you want to just buy one of these kits right now? You know, before the summit begins, you have that option entirely. Uh, and then these will be getting shipped out just as quickly as, as, as we can, you know, kind of towards the end of the uh, launch period here. Uh, so we're really excited about this whole venture, you know, and Brian has been a, the guy that's sort of led the charge on our, on our end here, you know, with, with your expertise and, you know, kind of Brian, you have personally tell and tell us real quick, kind of give us a quick overview, uh, your own take, if you will, on these kits and how you've vetted everything personally that's in those kits. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I've got a lot of experience using the stuff that's in it. Um, and, um, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of small details, um, that most people aren't going to notice that are important to me. Um, a lot of things for efficiency and, um, and for overall, um, I don't know, I guess overall, um, it's going to make your life easier. Uh, for example, um, we have a, an elastic bandage, basically like a, like an ACE wrap, um, and in the kit, a lot of, a lot of other companies will put in, um, some of those elastic bandages that have those little nasty little clips. Um, you yeah. use those to keep it in place. I've used those a lot before, and those are no fun to use in an emergency. You tear it open and those little clips, they go flying. You can't find them in the tall grass and you're trying to work on someone who really needs the help. Um, and you don't have what you need to get the job done. And so, um, as a result, I, I really wanted to include a type of uh, elastic bandage that has hook and loop. So that way it'll secure on itself. You don't have to hunt up those little clips. Um, you don't have to worry about losing them or having them fall off. You can just secure it with the, uh, the Velcro and it'll stay in place. So there's a lot of little things in the kit that, um, you know, I paid really close attention to. So you're getting the benefit of, you know, my experience using this stuff. And while you might not notice um, the, the, the little details, uh, it'll make your life easier in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such a great point. And I, I appreciate you for, for pointing out some, it's some of those little details that a lot of times, I mean, like, I'll be honest, I didn't even really think about that or, or uh, that was something I didn't really think about. I think I was aware of the little metal clip style of ace bandages. I mean, I think everybody's used those and I think I knew about the Velcro ones, but to like put that thought process into it and actually think, you know, we're going to source these, even if they're a little bit more expensive, uh, not by much probably by the way, but just because it's, it's that much easier to use, particularly when you're under stress. 
And uh, that's, that's, I think, really important. I mean, Brian, because of your experience in the field, you know, in, on the battlefield, literally patching guys up, fixing guys, trying to, you know, keep them alive until they could get extracted and, and back to a proper hospital, you know a thing or two about working efficiently, working quickly, working under pressure and under stress. And so I, I, it's been such an honor to me to be associated with you through this whole process as, as we've been working on getting Mountain Man Medical put together and getting all this off the ground. I've learned a lot, you know, just hearing that perspective from you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I give it my best. That's um, I, I see this as an extension of taking care of my Marines and, you know, I, my, uh, my reputation with my Marines was very important to me and I see this as an extension of that. So now I'm sure you'll relate to this, uh, this comment from Matthew, ace bandages, you don't need no stinking ace bandages, take a Motrin and change your socks. That's right. Change those socks. That'll fix everything. <laughs> Matthew forgot about drink some water though, too. <laughs> Isn't that like the the classic uh, Corman uh, advice? Is take a Motrin, drink water, change your socks. Yeah, that's all we. That's all they teach us. We don't learn anything else. But you know, it's it's amazing how much that actually fixes, right? Yeah. Guy, you know, probably the most common things you run into, guys just having some various pain or whatever. So take some Motrin. Guys are dehydrated. Drink some water. And you told me a story once about a dude that uh, got. I think was it some jet fuel or something on his socks and he didn't change them for a while. Yeah. That was, yeah. uh, that How'd was that a little, turn out? not so good. He <laughs> left a good portion of his feet in his boots when they took him off. <laughs> yeah. It was grody. It was grody. Well, the reason why they say Corman only say that is because Marines are a bunch of whiners and that's all they really need to do to take care of themselves. Yeah. <laughs> take a Motrin, drink water, change socks. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Advice for life right there. It sounds like really wise advice. Um, I wanted to point out that there's a, a – so, okay, real quick. The, the uh, We touched on it, but I wanted to make sure I provided the link. Uh, talking about fake tourniquets, the importance of avoiding fake tourniquets. Uh, if you want – folks, if you want to read the article that Brian wrote, it's a really great article. Uh, go to concealedcarry.com forward slash fake tq f-a-k-e-t-q concealedcarry.com forward slash fake tq really great article good information contained therein as far as like how to identify fakes versus uh real tourniquets the genuine uh north it seems like it's the cat tourniquets that seem to be the ones that are most uh copied and and uh 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 yeah that uh, counterfeited. There, there we go. That's. I knew there was, there was a word somewhere coming out uh, from the brain. <laughs> Just took a minute to get from the brain down to the tongue here. Uh, also, another article here that uh, I think is worthwhile. Uh, Brian is just looking at. Uh, we did a whole survey too, uh, compiling a bunch of uh, data from people that responded to this survey. Uh, the link for this is concealedcarry.com forward slash. Are you prepared? And that's not. It's spelled R-U, like the letters R and U, and then prepared. And if you go to that article, it kind of goes over a lot of the survey data that we compiled as far as what where people people in our audience currently stand as far as their information, their knowledge, their training, some of the gear that they carry with them, that sort of stuff. Uh, was there anything that came out of that data that was either surprising or, or you know, changed your opinion? Or, I mean, like, what, what were some of your takeaways from that data? Yeah, the biggest thing that I saw was that um, a good portion of um, the people that frequent our website is that they um, they've had some kind of training in the past. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they've, you know, a lot of people, the you know, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or, you know, whatever it is, you, you get some training somewhere. And a lot of people were saying that they've had training, but it's been, you know, within five years ago and more. Like some people were saying that they haven't had any training for 20 plus years. And um, something that always sticks out to me is that medical is a perishable skill. If you don't use it, you will lose it and you will forget it. Um, no matter how closely you follow that stuff, you know, I've, I've, I haven't been, um, working in a hospital for, you know, quite a while. And I already, I can see that I'm starting to lose that stuff. So I have to brush up on it and constantly make sure that I'm, I'm up to date on the latest and greatest. So if you haven't had any training in a while, um, you need to get some more and you need to revisit that training often. Um, you don't have to, you know, watch uh, the videos that I'm pushing, putting out. Obviously you could, if you wanted to, but you know, there's a lot of other places where you could go and get um, medical training. Um, the red cross is a decent place. Uh, they're doing the stop the bleep campaign. Um, so no matter what you do, get something and, and learn it and then keep learning it. Yeah. That's such a great point. Uh, we talk all the time about how firearm skills, shooting skills are perishable. Well, arguably this whole medical con- component, this whole medical piece is more important than knowing how to use a gun because all of us are far more likely to come upon a situation where, where some sort of medical response is needed, even if it's short term and in the interim, you know, uh, I've personally responded, you know, not being on duty to, you know, as far as like during my time working in law enforcement, just as a civilian, I've responded to multiple pretty severe car accidents. And, you know, some of which had some pretty bad bleeding and things going like that going on. So, you know, that is much more likely to be something that you experience in your life where you need good knowledge, education, and training combined with good quality gear potentially to save a life. Yeah, and, I think, and so make sure your training's up to date. Yeah, I I think one of the worst feelings in the world is seeing someone that's very hurt and you not knowing what to do for them. Um, sometimes you can't do anything for them. Um, but, um, standing there and watching, you know, someone who's hurt, especially if it's a loved one and, and not knowing what to do for them is, is a a pretty terrible feeling. Mm -hmm. And, uh, just a little bit of training. Trauma medicine's not difficult. It's not, they let guys like me do it. So it's not that hard. Um, anybody can learn it. There's just some key things that you have to pay attention to and remember and having some equipment nearby will help you do that. Yep. Yep. Um, Matthew, who is a viewer on Facebook with us today, makes a great point. Um, Stop the Bleed are courses that are available all over the place. There's been a huge movement to get these out there to the general public in a big way. Uh, If you can find a Stop the Bleed course nearby, I would encourage you to do that. You can go to Stop the Bleed. I think it's StopTheBleed.org or StopTheBleed.com. Maybe both of those links work. And find a class that's near you. Very Basic overview type stuff. They don't go super in depth, uh, but uh, uh, you know, as far as applying a tourniquet and other just basic life-saving measures that anybody can learn to do over the course of a few hours. Really, really simple. It, you know, not even that. Sometimes stopthebleed.org is the official link, so you can go to stopthebleed.org and find training up. Op- there's there's opportunities just about anywhere that you you might be somewhere fairly close to you you can find all these classes i've been through a couple of these classes i've also been through quite a bit more advanced uh first aid uh training 
I had the opportunity of, of, of attending a multi-day uh, first aid trauma medicine uh, course where we, I mean, we, we got all the way into packing wounds and applying tourniquets. Of course, that, that's relatively basic. Chest seals, uh, you know, working with quick clot and other hemostatic agents. I mean, it was a wonderful course that really opened my eyes, gave me a, a, a really fantastic foundation uh, for, for me personally. And I would, you know, it was an expensive course. Don't get me wrong. It was actually paid for by my employer at the time, which I was very thankful for. Uh, but if you had the opportunity to take a class like that, man, I'll tell you, it's, it's life-changing. I had the unfortunate opportunity, if you will, of being in that situation like you sort of described a moment ago, Brian, where I was in a situation as an 18-year-old kid uh, uh, responding. I came up on a pretty bad accident uh, involving a young girl on a motorcycle, and one of those small like mini bikes, uh, and she'd been hit by a by a full-size pickup uh, going full, you know, 50, 60, 60 miles an hour. It was bad, yeah. and I felt so hopeless in that moment. Uh, and we were, you know, minimum 15 minutes, if not 20 minutes or more, from help arriving, you know, and, and it was, uh, it was a terrible, terrible feeling of, of that hopelessness. I mean, I'd had, I was a boy scout when I was younger. I'd been through some training, but I realized in that moment that the stuff I had learned in boy scouts, maybe I wasn't paying attention enough. I don't know. Maybe it just wasn't enough. I, I don't know. I just, I didn't feel prepared. I felt so useless in that moment. And I vowed at that very moment that I would not be hopeless like that again. And I started attending various, I've trained it. I've, I've attended numerous forms of medical training, uh, since that time, since I was 18 years old, you know, from your basic CPR, first aid, AED, uh, to, you know, the more advanced courses, like I, I was able to take a few years ago. So, uh, guys, I, I can't, I cannot emphasize enough how important this is, but guess what? We have this free opportunity that you can make use of, uh, with some really great high quality, uh, informational content through our summit starting this week. It starts on, on Thursday this week. Concealedcarry.com forward slash summit. Make sure you go sign up. Do it right now. As soon as you're done listening to this podcast or even hit pause and, and come back and, and, you know, finish this episode. We're actually about done here, but make sure you get signed up. Okay. Cause I think you're going to really benefit from this training course. Plus, Kind of going back to what I was saying about our our new Mountain Man medical line of trauma kits and gear is it was really important to us to try to source all of the components, all the parts, the pieces, the supplies as inexpensively as we could, but still have it be good quality stuff that, and then pass that along to you guys. So I, I will put up our, our first aid trauma kits against anybody else's out there in the industry, especially when you look at price. You know, getting good quality name brand components in your hands for substantially less, and in some cases, a lot, lot, like more than half off from some other competing companies and their products out there. I will put our kit up against those kits, especially for the price. We're talking, everything we're selling is pretty much under 100 bucks. I think if you add the Cat 7 tourniquet to the Yellowstone kit, it ends up being just a little bit over $100. But we're talking a fully stocked kit with quick clot, chest seals, tourniquets. Two, tur- two tourniquets at that point, by the way, because you add the Cat 7, you still get the SWAT T included in it. Uh, gloves, trauma shears, a permanent marker, uh, compression bandage, um, uh, two rolls of gauze, uh, elastic bandage or wrap. Uh, am I missing anything, Brian? 
Um, you said chest seals, right? Yeah, yep. I, I think you got up most of it there. I mean, that, I'm, I'm that's a, a ton of stuff. It. I'll yeah. tell you, quick clot alone is like thirty bucks, and that's included in that. So keep that in mind. Quick clot alone, like thirty bucks. The tourniquet alone, like thirty bucks. It's like sixty bucks of your of your kit cost right there, and we're still barely selling the total kit with Cat Seven tourniquet for just over a hundred dollars. Yeah, if you try to buy everything that's in the kit yourself, you're gonna pay more. So, yep. you know, we, we put it together for you and we got some training for you. It's a, I don't know, it's a pretty, pretty uh, easy deal for me. Yep. And uh, Matthew asking about offering the Trauma Care Summit at NRAM 2020. Not there, but actually at the Concealed Carry Expo. We'll have a whole booth set up and Brian will be there actually teaching basic trauma aid classes right there in the booth at the Concealed Carry Expo. Yep. Oh, Come nice. and ask me some questions. I'll I'll be there to answer any questions. You got anything that you want to know about uh, being a corpsman or anything like that, feel free to come up and ask me. Yeah, that'll be a great opportunity. So, folks, if you're able to be in Kansas City, what is that, March 20th to the 22nd, uh, we'll, we'll be there. We'll have our broadcast booth there, broadcasting live from the show. Uh, we'll have this medical booth. Jacob and I will be presenting seminars while we're there. Concealed Carry Expo will be a great opportunity to connect with us, find us, hit us up, attend some of this free training that Brian will be putting on. It's going to be awesome. Looking forward to it, brother. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a fun time. Yep. So we better wrap it up. Uh, we've actually got a little bit more in an hour here, which is longer than I expected. But, you know, great stuff that I think we talked about here today, Brian. I appreciate you and your expertise and lending that to us here today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I had a great great time. Awesome. Well, folks, uh, one last call. Make sure, make sure you head on over to concealedcarry.com forward slash summit. Make sure you sign up for this free training event. And hey, you know, I think after listening to this today, you, you may be sitting there thinking, I need to get at the very least just one of these basic trauma kits. Um, hey, maybe you think you, you want to get one for your car or multiple cars, your home, maybe something to carry with you. I mean, the little pouch these come in uh, is a great little pouch with molly webbing and straps and things so you can attach this to other bags. Uh, it's relatively, you know, we, we also, it was, there was a lot of thought that went into, I wish I actually had one here with me so I could show those of you watching on camera. We had, a lot of thought went into the design of this pouch to fit everything compactly so it was not unnecessarily large. It's a great little compact kit that has so much in that little kit. So, yeah, anyway. I, I like the, the bag a lot. The, the bag was really important to me, especially, you know, spending a lot of time in Afghanistan and out in the field. Um, you, you have to have a decent bag, especially with good zippers. The yeah. zippers are always the first thing that fails on me, you know, and I've had, I've gone through a lot of trauma bags and, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we we're putting out a really great kit with a great bag with it. Yep. Awesome. Thanks again, Brian. So folks, we're going to let you go. You, you already, you got the call to action, so I hope you'll take action on on what we've discussed here today. With that, we'll sign on out of here. A reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Take care.